Welcome back to another episode of the Root of the Matter podcast. I am your host, Dr. Rachel Carver. Today, I'm excited. We have Dr. Rick Jacoby with us. He is going to talk to us a little bit about his book called Sugar Crush. He's going to talk to us a little bit about how what we eat can really impact our physiology. And we're also going to talk about nerve pathology. So we were just talking a little bit um, offline here about about the nerves. And I've never, as, as a dentist, I'm constantly trying to prevent people from needing these root canals. We all know that every tooth has a nerve running through it. Anybody who's ever had tooth pain, you're well aware of that fact. And again, as a biologic dentist, I want to do everything I can to try to preserve that nerve. We don't want to just always assume you have pain, boom, go get the root canal or have the tooth extracted. We know that the body is an amazing machine and it is capable of healing if we're able to give it the right nutrients, take away the toxicities or infections that might be contributing to the pathology. So with that, Dr. Jacoby, welcome. Maybe you want to tell us a little bit about your background and how, you know, came to the dark side, maybe? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good, that's a good intro. Thank you. And Welcome me to Massachusetts, correct? Yeah, we're in sunny Scottsdale, Arizona. We got a cold wave here. It was in the 40s this morning. It's warming up to about 65. So just to let you know, we're not used to that. So we like it. We like nice warm weather. But just as an intro to to this field of, uh, of nerve and dentistry and podiatry, there is a connection. And that connection uh, I learned of really about 25 years ago with Dr. Lee Dellen, who's a professor of neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins. And it's really interesting that we would have this conversation because I have had that conversation with many different dentists, friend of mine's an endodontist and I play tennis with him. And the root, and I love your the root of the matter, it is the root of the matter. So I'll work backwards from that particular nerve to my particular nerve in the foot, which is Morton's neuroma, which is an interdigital nerve between the toes that is the most common foot problem with nerves. And it's interesting because when I met Dr. Dowen down at Johns Hopkins, he said, why do you podiatrists cut the nerve out in the foot? I said, that's what we were trained to do. And I thought about that. And I said, gee, that is unusual. But it did work most of the time. When it doesn't work, it's a nightmare. So I was explaining that to one of my dental friends, and he's an endodontist. And he's, I said, I said, Dr. Dellen said that's the only nerve removed in the body. I said, I don't think that's correct either, because your nerve is the one most commonly, probably even more than Morton's neuroma. So what's the connection? So I drank the Kool-Aid back then on Dr. Dellen's theory. He's a professor of neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins, pretty bright guy. And he's developed a nerve decompression, not excision, decompression. So he came to the problem from a hand surgeon's point of view. So back in the 70s, neurosurgery as especially peripheral neurosurgery was not especially plastic surgeons did that surgery because it was very rare in the 60s. Actually, there were only 12 carpal tunnels in the literature in, in the 1960s. Last year, there were close to 800,000 carpal tunnel surgeries. Something is happening. <laughs> it's not because we have better diagnosis. No, it's because there's a common denominator between, I think, between a dental nerve 
compression and infection to our diet. And it, that answer to me is sugar. And specifically, that is high fructose corn syrup, which the human genome has never seen before. 1974, that's when it started. So my theory is sugar plus trauma equals nerve dysfunction. Certainly in the mouth, grinding your teeth, malalignment, malocclusion, the biomechanics of your mouth, plus the biochemistry of the nerve around it, and then you have dysfunction. So that goes for any nerve, in my, my opinion. So Dr. Dellen taught me peripheral nerve surgery, went down there, um, learned his technique, read his textbooks, and then maybe 2005, somewhere around that, I made the mistake and I said, Dr. Dellen, I think there's more to your theory these ones you figured out. That was a mistake. That was a mistake. <laughs> but I did. I, I started to look at literature that I normally wouldn't read, Circulation Journal 2005, Dr. Cook, and see another point of view. That's why it's so important that different points of view come to the table. This peer-reviewed nonsense is not, it's just, do you fit the narrative? Yes or no. If you don't fit the narrative, you're pushed out of the room. And that's the way it's always been. That is a very bad way to approach a problem. So now we have Dr. Cook. He's a cardiologist by training. He's got a PhD in vascular biology. And you would like this article. It's called the Uber Marker. It's about the biochemistry of uh, cardiac disease. Now, Dr. Cook's background, he's at Stan or he was at Stanford. And I don't know if you know this name, Gerald Raven, who was the person who really looked at metabolic or syndrome X, which then became metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, et cetera, et cetera. And he was at Stanford and Dr. Cook took, took that over. So I read his article. I text him. I said, hey, Dr. Cook, great article. I think it has something to do with Dr. Dellen's theory. And he called me on the phone. He said, I love your idea. Come up to Stanford. Long story. I work with him. We tested his molecule, which is asymmetric dimethyl arginine. So that molecule was suspected to block the nitric oxide pathway. And I thought, that what, what better pathway than nerve, the blood supply to the nerve? And it is true. It, it did that, but we didn't know that in 2005. So I used my patients who had diabetic neuropathy and looked at that molecule and I put them in different quintiles, and there were uh, correlations between lots of different diseases, including MS. And there were about 162 patients in my study. So I theorized that the biochemistry of nerves has a common denominator, doesn't matter what nerve it is. We call these, you know, obviously, we have names for every one of these nerves, and we're very proud that we can pronounce and remember them. Which is really a trap in a way, too, because that's not a diagnosis. And like Morton's neuroma in the foot. Do you have a, a name for nerves in the mouth that you put labels no, on? No, usually we would call it irreversible pulpitis, right? When we pulpitis. know that the ner when the nerve is dying, it's, it's this inflammation of the nerve. And when it's said to be irreversible, that means you either have to have a root canal or extraction. That's how we're taught. That's standard care of traditional dentistry. That's true. That's standard of care of podiatry for the interdigital nerve, which probably really never looked at the size, but I'll bet you're very similar, subjected to trauma in the foot, mouth for sure, trauma, sugar, yes, 
see how it starts to come together. Then you look at the biochemistry, and that molecule, asymmetric dimethylarginine, is the connector. So that blocks the blood supply to the nerve. So with my conversations with my local dental friends, I said, theoretically, we really wouldn't want to cut the nerve out. We would want to heal the nerve if we could. So let's look at the probably the trigeminal nerve that supplies the jaw, the upper and lower. That is a very painful condition, and dentists encounter that, what's called the suicide nerve, and it is. Now, this is ironic as well. So let me, I've been around a long time. So when I say these dates, it's embarrassing. So in my training in Philadelphia, and I was at Pennsylvania Hospital, which is the first hospital in the world, or in the United States, by the way, still there, beautiful, great learning institution. And there was a a doctor there by the name of Dr. Janetta. I don't know if you know, know that name, but he came up with a procedure for decompressing the trigeminal nerve uh, for um, that quote-unquote neuralgia. And he was a resident with me at the time. I knew him from rounds in the hospital, but he was a neurosurgeon. So we really didn't have that much contact other than through neurology. And he theorized back then that was a nerve compression. Then it radiates into the jaw, and it can be mistaken for a root canal. Because if the pain is so intense, and of course, a patient who has that kind of pain says, do anything, take the tooth out, take the jaw out. I don't care what you do. I can't live with this pain. And the foot is similar, but it's certainly not as severe as what your field is. So that was the connector. And so Dr. Dellen said the carpal tunnel was a nerve compression and the ulnar at the elbow and then the leg. Then I came along and said, wait a minute, it's all the same. They're just different locations of the nerve. So MS, cranial nerve, or ALS, etc. And I'm sure your field sees those changes of different cranial nerves because you're in that space. And, of course, they come to you probably more from the mechanics. For Like anybody else, it's always pain. Chief complaint, where does it hurt, right? And then we try to fix it. Yeah, let's see the connection between nerves doesn't matter where it is and what it's called it's still the same process and i think all the nerves throughout the body even autism which is interesting because that's in your field as well and from this standpoint for the hypoglossal nerve and that is um an interest of mine which is amazing because the hypoglossal nerve innervates the tongue what's that it's just a muscle with articulation, that's its one of its functions. So if that nerve is damaged, delayed speech, that's autism. So that's what I did in the book, Sugar Crush, went through all the different nerves, looked at the symptoms, literally swam upstream along where the nerve was and see where the compression was. And so that's my basic theory. So this, so what you're saying, is, so is this like a physical compression or is this biochemical, this substance that you mentioned, that's what's causing the compression. Maybe you can just clarify it for me a little bit. Yeah, so now let's dig into the biochemistry. So it is known that the ner- in diabetic neuropathy, now see, even that term, that sounds like that's distal for the leg. Well, no, let me give you a little anecdote. This is how Dr. Dellen came to that conclusion. He had a patient and he fixed the carpal tunnel and the ulnar tunnel of her 
arm. And she said to him in early 19, 1980s, said, Dr. Dallin, you fixed my arm. Why don't you fix my leg? And he said, oh, that's a different disease. That's diabetic polyneuropathy. Thought about it, went to the laboratory, rats, really phenomenal experiments, and then operated her leg and she restored her sensation without cutting the leg off because that's a cure too, isn't it? It's like root canal. <laughs> That'll fix it. And she got better. And then he started writing papers and then I picked up on that. And it, you're, when you really think of it, it's a very simple equation here. So what is the, the number one thing with sugar? So sugar, the Maillard reaction, are you familiar with that? reaction. So the Maillard reaction for your audience is a sugar plus a protein goes through a chemical reaction and it actually shrinks the collagen around the nerve. So you think of that as like a shrink wrap. It's squeezing the nerve from the outside. Then the second one is the polyol pathway, which is a sugar inside the nerve breaking down to a alcohol sugar, which is called sorbitol. And the water is pulled into the nerve by the alcohol, and it swells the inside of the nerve. So now we have a covering that's shrinking and the interior of the nerve that's swelling. I think we can call that compression. That's the type of neuropathy. So neurologists do not buy into this theory. Neurology, let me, not, this is not a uh, put down for neurologists. They're very bright guys, and I studied with lots of them, but they have no skill set to fix it. All they can do is write for a prescription. I suspect, I always tell them this. I suspect if you pressed hard enough with your pen, you could do surgery. <laughs> or you can give an injection. But basically, they only can write per prescriptions like Lyric, Gabapentin, all that sort of thing. But see, you and I have different skill sets. You can do the surgery. You know the chemistry. You know the mechanics natural remedies. So you come at, to, come at the problem with lots of different modalities, which most subspecialists can't do. Podiatry is very similar to that. So I can write a prescription. I can do the surgery. I can fix the biomechanics. So that kind of gives me an advantage. When he wrote his original papers, the neurology world thought it was crazy that operating on diabetic leg. It's just crazy. If you didn't have surgical training like he did, or I do, that would be crazy. So what's the difference? Why? So first of all, I'd like to use this term. Can you see what I see? And the answer is, if you're not trained like in your field or my field with microscopes and, and magnification, you don't see what I see. And if you don't know what we're talking about, then what would you look for? Because you don't have any suspicion that, I don't know, I'm looking inside. I Actually, I did look inside of another friend who's an endodontist. He has that big microscope, Zeiss, is it? And I looked in it inside the tooth, and I'm like, oh, my God, all those crevices. How would you get all that bacteria out of there? We're, that's, it's a pretty interesting space. Can you see what I see to, to the average person? The answer is no, you can't because you don't have the knowledge. And you don't have the lens to look at it through that point of view. And if, if you can tell me you, you looked at the point of view, you do have the knowledge and we disagree, that's fine. We disagree on at least on a common ground. But most people, oh, no, that's nonsense. What are you looking at? They, they, especially in neurologists, they don't know that. Even if they did see it, what are they going to do? 
you're going to write for Lyrica. So well, part of the reason why we do this podcast, right, is because we want to create awareness that there are alternatives, that there are people who understand who, like yourself, like myself, who are, are always asking why. Why, 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 how, why, can, why? how can we get at the root of the problem? How can, because we can bandaid everything with medications and even in the mouth, we can put night guards in everybody because they're grinding, but that's a bandaid. Why are you grinding in the first place? Right? Because right. now it's even, there's some studies showing night guards, Ooh, they may even worsen sleep apnea or snoring because they're causing a slippery slide, allowing that mandible to fall back. So Again, why is it? I just had a conversation with a new patient this morning. Are you grinding because you have parasites? You have stress. Everybody has stress, but not everybody grinds. So what is at the crux of that, right? So I want to circle back to something you said that was really interesting to me. You talked about sorbitol causing some swelling. Now, sorbitol is a very common ingredient found in natural oral care products, not I'm not a fan of these sugar alks, but xylitol is another one that's huge. And there, there is research saying this is great. It prevents cavities, but it kills things, right? So the long-term use of these sugar alcohols is not, in my opinion, right, is not good long-term care. Can you expand on that? The, the yes, I can. Piece? Yes, I can. So in that chemistry dive that I did with Dr. Cook... So let's go to that molecule, asymmetric dimethyl arginine. So basically, what is that? So it blocks the nitric oxide pathway. For your audience, we have L-arginine, semi-essential amino acid, and it converts to nitric oxide. Now, if those other cofactors are there. For instance, there's a thing called BH4, which is B6, B12, folic acid, and vitamin C. And if those levels are low, then you're going to not produce nitric oxide. You're going to produce more perioxynitrite. So what's the difference? Sorry, I'm going to interrupt you right now and say that one more time for us. What are those nutrients that are key? We're trying to convert L-arginine to nitric oxide. Because nitric nitric oxide creates blood flow, right? Yes, because it dilates the blood vessel. And it, but it has a lot of cofactors. ADMA, that asymmetric dimethyl arginine, we'll call that ADMA. So that blocks the pathway. And we'll get into why that is. And then another cofactor is BH4. That's a notation for tetrahydrobiopterin, which is a chemical cofactor. And it consists of B6, B12, folic acid, and vitamin C. Now, you know, in biochemistry, it just goes on and on. It gets complicated. But vitamin C competes with sugar because humans cannot produce vitamin C. And you produce vitamin C out of glucose. It's just two carbons different. So if you're drinking a lot of fruits and fruit juice, you're getting sugar. You're not getting vitamin C because insulin will tell vitamin C to take a hike because there's only one, as I say, bouncer at the door. And they can tell, or insulin can tell the difference. So we need vitamin C to get in the cell. But if you're eating a lot of sugar, including alcohol sugars like sorbitol, you're going to knock that out. So that's the basic equation. And it, so we're producing nitric oxide, dilating the blood vessel, or its counterpart, perioxynitrite, which is ONO notation. And it causes the, the blood vessel to shrink. There's a formula 
called the Poiswell's, I don't know if I pronounced that correctly, but Poiswell's theorem, and, and which is interesting, has all this stuff in there. A lot of variables, but the most unique part of the formula is R to the fourth power. So when you have blood flow through a, through a vessel, that means the radius to the fourth power. So 19% reduction in the radius equals a 50% reduction in blood flow. That's enormous. And talking about your nerve or my nerve or anybody's nerve, if that blood flow is interrupted, you'll get necrosis. What happens every time you have your tooth filled, most dentists are using anesthetics with epinephrine. And what does epinephrine do? It constricts your blood vessels. That's so, right. Yeah. You know, when I, I, I had a colleague who told me once, I noticed 18 months after I would give people blocks, which is a nerve injection that numbs the whole bottom side of your mouth. He said that then the teeth would die. And I just thought about that. I was like, that's not good. This is a doctor who'd been practicing. He's actually from Arizona. He'd been practicing 40 years. So I'm like, he's got some knowledge. And so from that point on, I stopped using epi and I use a carbocaine now with no preservatives, no, no epinephrine. And I then subsequently found all this research. It was done in, in knee surgeries, but they said specifically 2% lidocaine, which is the dentist's gold standard in anesthetic we use, created not only is the epinephrine a problem, but the lidocaine itself causes mitochondria to die. And as most of you will know, mitochondria is where we produce our energy. It's really important for our immune system. So this is a big problem in dentistry. And people think nothing of it. You go, you get your shot and go on your way. But even 30 seconds, right, of restricting that blood flow is huge. And usually in a dental treatment, if you have one shot, which sometimes it's harder to numb the bottom teeth, maybe you get two or three, that that can shut off the blood flow for an hour, maybe. So really problematic. That's the same issue in the foot. So I don't use epinephrine for that exact reason, because the toes have very poor circulation. And if that stops for more than an hour, you've got problems. And so, yes, so we have a similarity there. The, the other issue is nitric oxide, back to nitric oxide, the production. There's so many things that can stop that, like mouthwash. So mouthwash kills the nitrites, and you can't. Because in your saliva, it goes into your gut. That's all part of the microflora. And it's amazing. Just a little change causes major outputs that are not good. We should discuss dental hygiene. That's a good one to talk That's about. important because maybe if you have a, your wisdom teeth extracted or another extraction or you have some gum surgery, most of the time you're going home with what's called chlorhexidine, which absolutely kills all of these very important bacteria that sit at the the back of your throat under your sinus, and they are able to convert nitrites from your food into nitric oxide. So if you kill all those nitric oxide producing bacteria, you are creating major problems for your cardiovascular system, among other things. But that is, is, so we've got to get away from the Listerine. We've got to get away from thinking about, we got to kill everything. We don't need to kill. We need to balance, (laughs) right? So wow. give us your take on the hygiene. That just flips right into the pastor, pastor, the pasteurization and the terrain theory. Yes. That's, I've always thought about that. Wait a minute, just because you couldn't see those critters and somebody came along like pastor and you put a microscope and you see all the bugs and you go, oh my God, we're going to kill all those guys. Maybe at some point we'll get deep into that. For the most part, you don't want to kill them. They're, they're your buddies. 
So that kind of gets into the COVID issue as well, because where's the portal of entry through the mouth and the nose? And where do you have most of the nitric oxide produced? In your nasal cavity. And if you're a mouth breather, you're going to, that's going to be a factor. So these little guys, and they're not mean guys, maybe COVID, the SARS were tampered with. Let's just go with that. But normal viruses, as I say, viruses are people too. What do they do? They just want to raise their family and find food. So where are they going to find food? Now, when I was in school way back, worked in a laboratory, really a famous laboratory in Philadelphia, Ben Franklin. So I did the experiments for Dr. Shep, who's world famous guy. And I rendered the rats and did the electrophoresis. And, and we had to grow bacteria and viruses. Viruses are very difficult to grow. You have to have a live tissue, perfect nutrient, or they die. So let's look at the oral cavity as the perfect breeding ground for viruses in general, not the ones that have been tampered with. But what are they looking for? They are looking for food because they cannot duplicate themselves or replicate because they're basically RNA. So they look in your cell and look around and say, let's see, are you using that copy machine for the moment? And if your cell says, no, would you like to make some copies? They're going to multiply. But what are they looking for? They're looking for sugar, for food, and an ability to replicate and raise their family. You die, they live. Oral hygiene is extremely important. So putting Listerine in, like you said, is no, the body has developed its own immune response with lots of nitric oxide in, in the nasal turbinates to, to protect the body, the terrain, and not pasture. <laughs> so we get right into that debate. But it is difficult for patients because they've been, it's just been hammered down. This is the right thing. So that we're, uh, let's go back to this peer-reviewed thing. I really think any new idea should not have the previous generation. It's like politics. You don't think they're going to listen to you if you have a new idea. I think there should be as many diverse people on that panel, like a dentist looking at what we're doing in the foot. You would look and say, why do you do that? That's what we were taught. And you said, maybe you look at it differently. You have a guy like Dellen or a cardiologist. You need a mix of people from all points of view. Now, we're not saying anybody's correct, but it's interesting to hear the different points of view. Look at the commonality. If a dentist and a podiatrist, you would never think that would have anything to do with each other. But it's physiology. It's, it just has a different part of the body. That's all it is. And so. I think we often get stuck in our ways because this is what I was taught. How am I supposed to know any better? But there are some of us who just have that curious mind and they we want to know. And, and for me, it wasn't satisfying to know that my patient had to have a root canal or have a tooth extracted. As much as I enjoy doing tooth extractions, I'd rather my patient never lose a tooth, right? And so it bothered me. I don't, I went into dentistry because I wanted to provide health. And the more you got into it, it was like, I'm just like a tooth engineer and I'm just managing these diseases. And, and that's unfortunately what a lot of healthcare is today. We're managing. And so I, that just didn't feel right for me. I just didn't like how I felt. Plus my own personal trying to deal with what's causing my own eczema. And that made me think, 
well, geez, maybe I can think about dentistry differently. So yeah, I agree. Just like I said, with that dentist from Arizona, who I didn't go look out for some peer reviewed journal. I said, hey, I'm going to take his, he has 40 years of experience. And that's a heck of a lot more valuable to me, in my opinion, than reading some study done on a rat. Yeah, I think sometimes we put too much emphasis on it has to be double-blinded, random, controlled, peer-reviewed, when sometimes anecdotal evidence is some of the best evidence. And as long as we're not harming somebody, I like to try and see what works. Right. And most of these studies are with the endpoint is to find a drug. So they're trying to put money into a project to monetize whatever that disease is. That's not pure science. That's a business. <laughs> Yes. We know healthcare has become business now, right? It's unfortunate, right. but we've, we've lost some of that personalized. Your doctor doesn't come to your house anymore. There's no such thing as house calls <laughs> anymore. Right. And that's it's unfortunate. And it's because we've it's become more of a business. We've taken the doctor's authority away in, in some cases. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, unfortunately, that's what's happened. So that's why in my... All this stuff we just talked about is in my book, Sugar Crush. But my new book, hopefully comes out next few weeks or so, is really exploring the solution to the, this sugar problem. When I see a patient who's 50, 60, 70 years of age, and they have a, a diabetic neuropathy and they're about to lose their leg, which is roots, same thing as a root canal. What can I do to save this? Are there things I can do to intervene? Stem cells are a really big part of this equation. And one of the sources is pulp, tooth pulp. is a good source of stem cells. But the problem is, the way I see it, you lose about 90% of your own stem cells by age 50. And most of the people I see have chronic disease or over 50. So what if I said to them, oh, we're going to take, I'm not going to pull a tooth, but drill a hole in your bone, pull out the bone marrow, spin it down and inject you. Is it going to work? It's going to help, but you don't have enough stem cells. So I like perinatal stem cells, which is the afterbirth, and specifically the Wharton's jelly from the umbilical cord. And that's magic. That could be used anywhere. As I how to use a crude expression, I say, stem cells don't give a rat's ass what you call your itis. And because they're going to go wherever the inflammation is, they're really smart little guys, and they put the fire out. Now, in the United States, FDA says, whoa, wait a minute, you're going to kill a pharmaceutical company. <laughs> That's really what they're saying. So they want us to be... I don't know. Do you use uh, stem cells in um, your practice? Well, it's interesting you say that because I use the PRF technique. So anytime somebody needs a tooth extracted, we will draw their blood, spin it down, and use their platelets, plug that in. And the healing with that is unbelievable. And I've never seen oh, anything okay, like right. it in my 20 years. So that the same idea that we're saying, we're using the stem cells from your platelets. But interesting that you say, the older the patient are, maybe it's not as profound the older they are. Okay, let's talk about that because that's really an interesting subject. Yes, PRP, which I've used for years, it works because you you can get a high concentration. But over 50, it's not really that, not as potent as stem cells. So if you get them from a perinatal tissue, you got millions of cells. They're young, good cells. Now, here in the United States, we can use the Wharton's jelly. But the FDA says 
under their 361 category. And this is, if you read the document, you'll be, it's nauseating how to the extent they have done to try to prevent you from using it. But there is a way to use it as long as it is homologous use. And what that means is the umbilical cord, in my interpretation, or a lot of arrest me on this one, but that's what they say. So they say, you can use Wharton's jelly as long as it is not manipulated. In other words, don't add chemicals, A, It doesn't have a systemic effect. I don't know how you prevent that, but you can't claim that. And you can't claim anything because you haven't done the research. And it has to be homologous use, meaning like for... And I looked at that. In my field of diabetic neuropathy, I said to myself, the umbilical cord is a conduit, artery, nerve, and vein with a supportive tissue, which is called Wharton's jelly. What is in the hand, the median nerve in the wrist, the carpal tunnel, artery, nerve, and vein. Supportive tissue innervates the muscle, and that's its function. It's no different than any nerve. So this would apply to your field as well. Now, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but if you had, and I'm sure you have these cases where just multiple root canal problems, and maybe there's a compression with the facial nerve, or excuse me, the trigeminal nerve, injecting Wharton's jelly in this area, it's going to change the inflammatory nature of that entire distribution of that nerve distally, exactly the same as it would in my field down at the like the comperineal nerve. So that that could be a really interesting dental procedure to enhance outcomes, especially with implants. Now you're putting an implant in a jaw with a, you know, on an 80 year old. The circulation can't be that good, but augmenting with Wharton's jelly, I think that would be a great adjunct because you need to get that good blood supply. So let me just segue to, this is all my new book, but working with Dr. Cook at Stanford, now he is the head of stem cell research at Baylor. We have these conversations. (laughs) You would love the conversation, but he's such a super guy. He's in the cardiac cardiovascular, he's making new hearts. I'm down here in the clinic trying to figure out save legs. And also there's a fellow called, his name is <clears throat> Neil Reardon. He has a clinic down in Panama. He used to practice in Scottsdale, but he couldn't do the things he wanted to do. So he cultures these cells and grows them. And he treats all kinds of diseases, MS, autism. It doesn't matter. Like I said, stem cells, by the way, they don't speak English. And, and I've been to Panama, they don't speak Spanish either <laughs> because they work down there just like they work here. Mm-hmm. And I've also, there's a great clinic in, in Mexico and around Puerto Vallarta, the Dream Body Clinic. So do they work? Yes. Are they safe? Absolutely. Do we need more research? Of course we do. But the FDA, in my opinion, is slow walking the cure to protect these drugs that really don't work but they do monetize the disease quite nicely. But you're, and you and I are patients as well. And we're also citizens of the United States, I think, right? So should, shouldn't we have a voice? When do we give all this power away to some agency who only cares about themselves? They give lip service. That's a dental term, right? Lip yeah. service. They're protecting us. They're no more protecting us than the IRS. 
We need an open and honest discussion, just like we're having today. And that should be the peer reviewed. And that really would, I would, I get people like geologists, anthropologists really know that at dentals world, they're amazing. There's an Institute for Human Origins, Don Johansson's at Arizona State University. He talks about teeth all the time because that tells you exactly going back millions of years, what did humans eat? Why do you have incisors and canine and grinders and whatever? You can tell from the dental record what food uh, was the best for human beings. Yeah, That should be in all, the, all our conversations. So that's what I try to do in the new book. It's called, I'm going to ask you the, the trick question because it was asked to me. They said, ask me, what's glucose mean? And I gave that answer I gave you. And, and he said, no, what's the word mean? And I went, I don't know. I had to look it up. It's a Greek word, mean, glucose, meaning to adhere, stick together. It's glue. <laughs> it's that simple. So the, this was at a think tank over in Hollywood, the Hollywood type people. And they were going, you need to call your new book Unglued. How do you get unglued? Okay. And it's such, so stem cells are part of that. Red light therapy, which is, I think, good for dental, produces more nitric oxide. I just had, was on, had him on my podcast, Nathan Bryan, yep. who's, he's big into the nitric oxide world. He worked with Dr. Cook as well. So you have nitric oxide. Ultimately, it is nitric oxide. Because that dilates the blood vessel. The stem cell, really, they, get, they gave it a name. MSCs, mesenchymal stem cells, mm -hmm. that was given by Arnold Kaplan, who first saw those cells, but they're really pereocytes. They just look like little amoebas on the back of uh, blood vessels. They secrete growth factors like VEGF, vascular endothelial growth factor, and they just burrow their ways into areas lacking angiogenesis, really is what it is, blood supply. Same for your field, same for my field, same for everybody's field. And stem cells do that. That's and how they work. Yeah, the stem cells are great. And there's a lot of research in dentistry, especially with extractions and implants. It's just, how do you get it? I went to last February, I think I was in Vegas at a conference and we were talking about, and this company was there and I'm not sure what happened to them because you can't get a hold of them anymore. I had some of their products and I was trying it out, but it is, it's a problem. It's, this is probably, so, yeah, probably because they didn't understand that word homologous use mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. in my field, that means I'm treating nerves. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm operating on nerves every day. So I can, I have to, I look at them. I'm looking at them under the microscope. So I'm using stem cells. And if that's not homologous use, then the FDA put that in there just to stop everything. But that's what I interpret the word homologous is. Mm -hmm. And I could interpret that for your field as well. And the trigeminal nerve, that's where I would inject it. Oh, I'm not a dentist and I can't make any recommendations, but it just between you and me, no one's listening to this, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
well, again, that's part of the podcast, right? It's just people aren't even aware that there are these alternatives. And that's, that is my goal is not to tell somebody what to do, what not to do. But the more we start talking about, just like you said, the more different perspective, the more we start talking about it. And if people start going to their doctors and asking for these things, then we have to open that conversation and and do those kind of things. That's all we really want to do. We're not trying to denigrate anybody per se. We just want to have conversations. We just want to have open, honest conversations that there are these wonderful treatments that we can do if we just really listen to the body, right? I love this. It's really fast. And it's interesting because I will tell my patient, if I have somebody who has this pulpitis, right? If it's reversible and I'm fingers crossed, can I keep it? And can I get rid of that inflammation? One of the first things I'll say is no sugar for at least three days because we know. So, and you've just explained why, what the sugar is doing. It's causing this compression. We also know that sugar can create inflammation that also reverses the fluid flow within the tooth, right? So not only the nerve coming to the tooth, but the nerve inside the tooth. So we have a couple things going on and we want, and people don't realize that every tooth is an organ. We think that's just something I used to chew, but every tooth has its own nerve blood lymph supply. And we want that fluid to come from circulation and put it into the enamel. We want all those minerals to be deposited out into, it's not that the way we typically learn about cavities, it's just your mouth is acidic and you've got bacteria. That's only a very small part of the story, right? And people don't realize also enamel is constantly turning over just like bone. Every seven years, we have a brand new skeleton, right? So the same thing with the teeth. So to say that you can't ever try to remineralize decay or anything like that's just not true. We know it's more challenging in the mouth versus bone because the mouth is full of bacteria, right? So versus bone, it's a closed system. You usually it's sterile. You can heal bone more easily than say a cavity, but that's why we want to look at that, the terrain, right? Get, create an alkaline environment, create the healthy bacteria, remove too much sugar so that the fluid is flowing in the proper direction. And that's how you can heal these things, but it's complex, but the more we understand And so I love this also. One of the other things I will tell my patients is giving them some nitric oxide tablets, right? You can suck those in, boom, open up because we know, in my opinion, like when we have pain, the energy isn't flowing, right? There's something preventing energy. So whether it's a physical compression, it's some kind of toxin or infection, how do we get that energy flowing, right? So that's why I love red light therapy. So we have a ton of red lights in our office. We have patients, they can purchase them. They have a little wand, so you can put it directly over the tooth. And if ideally you can do that for 60 seconds a day, again, that constant, because you can't come into the office every day. You could, but you really don't want to waste your money on that. So I try to encourage my patients, purchase a red light, whether it's a full body panel or, but if you have teeth problems, having that little handheld one is phenomenal. If we want to do, if patient wants to do everything they can, because one root canal, that's going to set you back almost $2,000. Whereas you can buy a handheld red light for a couple hundred bucks and then you'll have it forever. I tell my patients all the time too, if you ever fall down, get a cut or a scrape, do not ice. You do not want to ice because what are we doing with ice? Cutting off circulation. You want red light. You want, you want good circulation and that light stimulates our mitochondria. It's so important for for, for how the cell works. I absolutely love, love, love light therapy because it's, again, it's another modality to increase blood flow. And that is the key to life. We know, right? What happens in cancer? We don't get enough oxygen, right? So 
we need better blood flow so we can deliver that oxygen to where it needs to go. So again, this is super exciting for those of you out there maybe who have a tooth pain. What can you do? How can you increase that circulation? Light's an option using nitric oxide supplementation. As you said, what makes that BH4? Those B vitamins. B vitamins are so crucial to energy production. So a, a nice, good quality B complex fantastic for so many reasons. Here's another reason to use that too. It's been great. What other good good advice can we take home for us with nerve? What nerve is doing what it's supposed to do. It's sending a signal something's exactly. wrong. Go right. look at it. Figure it mm-hmm. out. To the red light, Dr. Michael Hamlin, I worked with him about 20 years ago. He's up at Harvard and he was working on lasers at that time. Now he's saying that LED, red light therapy, is pretty close to the lasers that we used to use 20 years ago. They were like 50 grand. Now that now the costs have come way down. I love your idea. Yeah, just put that in your mouth. If you have an in- inflammatory problem, yeah, it's all about blood flow. Bring it, It's really so simple. It's silly when you really think about it. And to the cancer as well, that's why cancers grow because they lack blood supply. Then you go to anaerobic metabolism because there's no oxygen there. And that's the Warburg effect. Otto Warburg, it's the beginning of the 1930s, got the Nobel Prize. It's sugar. <laughs> it's fructose. It's not complicated. And that's really the question here. Why is this all being suppressed? It is being suppressed. And our, our leaders need to become come to task on this, making us feel like we're the criminals because we can't express ourselves. That's Soviet stuff. And you, we should have this conversation without any threat. And there should be more conversations like this. And that's, like you said, it is a conversation. And your audience should call in and say, Jacoby, this is not true. You didn't say it the correct way. Good. I want to hear that. Bring your paper. Let's talk about it. Let's figure it out. And if we never had these conversations, we would still think the world was flat, right? (laughs) Oh, yes. This is how we evolve science is we ask the questions. And that's important. If we we need to try to get at the the bottom of all this chronic disease, right? So we have to ask the questions. We have to do, I had a patient the other day, he said he's had a brand new patient, sinus issues for six months, and he's on his third round of antibiotics. And I said, remember that saying, what is the definition of insanity, right? You keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And I said, this is, that's crazy. Like it's the same antibiotic he's been on three times. <laughs> so I said, interestingly, so you're killing all this bacteria. Guess what's going to overgrow? fungus, right? Fungus is very common in the nasal cavity. So I was like, maybe we need to look in, look for the fungal component. I'm like, let, why don't we just try some ozone? Because ozone can kill bacteria, virus, parasite, and fungus on contact. Why don't we try this? And I'm not saying maybe he will need a uh, systemic antifungal. I'm not against it. But hey, let's see if we can just oxygenate the environment, create a healthier environment in general, so that the body will clear the infection on its own. Because that's what we're doing with these oxygen therapies. It's not a drug. It's a stimulation to your own body. And And that's why I love that because it's not, there's no side effects, no contraindications. It's very safe. We're using something that your body makes naturally. People aren't aware really that ozone is something you make internally. People just think of it as the smog and we're killing the, the environment. But just like you said, with Otto Warburg, the whole idea of oxygen, we've been using ozone to treat water since um, the early 1900s. 
So it's another thing that nobody, fortunately, it's been grandfathered. Uh, the FDA has grandfathered ozone for dentistry, not the same for medicine. But but anyway, side topic. But again, we just, we need to get that. So I use a lot of ozone with these pulpitis cases too, because we want oxygen. We want blood flow. And ozone's very good at Ozone actually, when it hits the body, it will dissociate. One of the molecules it dissociates into is nitric oxide. And that's one of the most profound healing effects of it is creating the blood flow. That's what we need for our body to heal. And that's how it heals faster that way. All the same. Doesn't matter what area of the body. Mm -hmm. Same physiology. Absolutely. We're in an exciting uh, time now because um, we have all these new modalities. And I have to look up Dr. Uh, Hamlin at, at Harvard. When I was with him, he had about 150 papers. He's up to about 500 papers now. And I'll bet you he has some work on the dental cavity. I'll bet, yeah, I'll look that up. But for your audience, Michael Hamlin, uh, he started with lasers. Now he's, he's into the LED. He has a formula, two joules of energy per square centimeter is his formula. And yeah, that's what it does. It's so simple. Yeah. It's great. Who would have known, right? You know, right. <laughs> this is why, why sunlight's so important too, right? All of yeah, these light thing. frequencies are, our cells actually communicate with photons. So you don't think about it, but you know, again, that's why living up in new England in these dark, cold, wintry days, not getting enough sunshine, we get more of that seasonal affective disorder. And yes, part of it's vitamin D, but again, it's, it's also the light we need. Our it cells is the light. want light. I, they want light. And you know that you said that because it was cold this morning here. And so I had to cover my geraniums. <laughs> and I was looking at them and you're right. They're just like, okay, take that off. We need the sun. Yeah. And you can see them. Flowers start to bloom. How do they do that? It's just a photon, light wave. That's, we're the same. Yeah. We're the same thing. Yeah. yeah. It's absolutely fabulous. You've left us with some great information. You taught me something new. I appreciate that. And I'm really interested. I think I need to stock up on a little more nitric oxide in the the office too. Because I'm always thinking, what can I give the patient to take home? Because when they have that kind of inflammation, you can't just come once a week, right? What what can we do on a daily basis to enhance that circulation? So that's what I'm always looking for. What what are the best things we can use? That's my formula. So number one, B vitamin, or number one, don't eat sugar. Number, that's a whole discussion, but limit the sugar, carbohydrates, number one. B vitamins, they have to be in the methylated form, I believe. Nitric oxide supplements, red light, and stem cells. And you have a perfect non-surgical approach to disease. And that's in my book, Unglued. And uh, Great title. All right. So everybody, please check out. And can you find your books like on Amazon or where can we find your books? Yeah. Sugar Crush is on Amazon. They're pushing my audio portion of it. I just noticed that the other day. They're still being carried at Barnes & Noble. I I still like books to hold on to (laughs) so I can mark them up. And Unglued will come out. It'll have all the same thing. It'll be on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. It it should be a good book, I think. (laughs) That's fantastic. If anybody had any questions for you specifically, is there anywhere they can reach out or? Yeah, I have a couple different websites. One of the ones, which is the course, is drjacobi, small caps, jacobi.academy. So I teach this whole thing. So that's probably the best way to get a hold of me. 
Fantastic. I hope you all learned something just like I did. And now we know how to try to keep all our nerves as healthy as possible. So I appreciate all your time with us today. And for all you listeners, we'll catch you on the next episode. Have a great day.